Good afternoon, everybody. Welcome back to where are we? Other minds and hands. That's where we are. It's been so long that I'm like forgetting where we are. It's been a while. Yes. Internet and traffic to be here just a few minutes late. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. We are persevering against. I'm even hearing. Technical difficulties here, but I think I'm fixed again. So here we go. <laughs> um, we can do it. There we go. So, in any case, um, welcome back to Other Minds and Hands. This is session number 62 of Other Minds and Hands. And uh, as a Maggie and I are persevering against lots of technical difficulties, today we are returning to our um, openings series, um, and we're pursuing. This was um, this was Jennifer's suggestion today. This was, I just wrote it down, and of course, now I lost it. It was Jennifer and John. Right. Jen, Jen, Jen Mello, right? Yep. Jen Mello and John Markoff. Yes. John yeah. Markoff, yeah. yeah. Um, so both, rec both requested this, I believe. Yeah, there you go. So Alice's Adventures in Wonderland. We're looking at the Alice in Wonderland adaptations. We're going to do a couple um, uh, children's uh, stories, which I think there's, there's, I don't know. There's a lot that is interesting in uh, uh, several kind of different elements, I think. In just as like a genre, I think it's really interesting. You know, if you just look at like the Grimm's fairy tales as adaptations and what Disney did to them, like just those decisions of adaptation is really interesting to take this like terrifying macabre thing and turning it into a easily digestible G-rated kids film, taking it from gritty descriptors to colorful primary colors animation you know that kind of vibe and inserting songs and talking animals and all sorts of things that disney's famous for it's a bold choice to make that kind of change because disney redefined it right like now there's a certain preconception when you say alice in wonderland or peter pan or any of those that yes yeah snow white there's there's a lot of those that are a little bit different now because of Disney. Um, and then those are now being readapted. So we've got modern interpretations of an adaptation like we do with Alice in Wonderland. Exactly. And of course, there is there is also another element with children's... Well, that is often... It's not always, but it is often a factor in children's book. And that is that many of them are illustrated with very memorable illustrations. And so a lot of the visual decisions are at least influenced and sometimes heavenly, heavily influenced by the traditional uh, illustrations, wh often which accompanied the text from the very beginning. Um, mm -hmm. Disney's visual adaptation of Alice, you know, the little blonde girl in the blue and white dress, is, you know, I, I think now a dominant image. Like It's, I, you know... Think of Halloween costumes on kids. If you saw that kid walking down the street, you know who she was playing. Right. It's iconic. Yeah, exactly. It has become a really iconic figure. That, of course, iconic. It, it is Disney's version of it, which has become the iconic image. But that image itself, of course, is based on John Tenniel's famous illustrations from um, Alice in Wonderland. So um, anyway, so that, that's sort of another element of the adaptation choices like to what extent are you guided by um to what extent do you deliberately deviate from um you know many of the traditional uh uh visual elements of that as well anytime that you're anyway so that's certainly another 
another interesting question. Yeah, I think this is just kind of opening up a can of worms of like, we've done openings for a long time. I can imagine we could fall into children's adaptations for a long time and do multiple episodes on each of these. So just looking at openings for Alice in Wonderland, I feel like is a really good start. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I, it also just makes me think about, you were talking about uh, any preconceptions and stuff like audiences, you know, when, when Disney took this, they were specifically trying to make children's films. That is a very targeted audience that is entertainment for you know for for kids enjoyment but the modern adaptations are a little bit broader in their audience reception like yes maybe they want kids to be aware of it but they're really appealing to a broad spectrum and i think that also like goes hand in hand with the whole definition of children's literature like yeah that's a whole debated thing too what is children who decides can that does that mean adults can't enjoy it right yeah all of that kind of audience reception stuff and and we'll get there when we talk about the 2010 adaptation but obviously they've changed a few things to potentially appeal to an adult's mm-hmm. desire for a more complex story or apparent desire right I don't always, or apparently I don't complex, complex <laughs> <story>. yeah <laughs> yeah exactly exactly okay so one of the issues one of the things that i find challenging about talking about alice in wonderland is that is the way in which the two works that is Alice's Adventures in Wonderland um, and Alice's Adventures Through the Looking Glass, right? You know, they're two separate books that Lewis Carroll wrote, and they get very freely combined in the modern imagination. Like it's, um, and in adaptations, this is almost universal. So, for instance. Um, the inclusion of Tweedledum and Tweedledee. Tweedledum and Tweedledee are through the Looking Glass characters. Like, the, that, that is not... A, and then you think about, in the 2010 adaptation, the Queen of Hearts and the Red Queen have been combined into yeah. one character. And these are completely different concepts. In And one from each book. You've got the Queen of Hearts, which is a card-playing joke, um, which is the the a character from Alice in Wonderland, and then you've got the Red Queen and the White Queen, which is a chess playing joke in Through the Looking Glass, right? So chess is one of the dominant conceptions um, and kind of mechanisms of Through the Looking Glass, um, where card playing, is, you know, along with some other things, are you know the mainstays of Alice in Wonderland. Anyway, the point is, it's very clear to see there isn't any adaptation that I know of that stays true to one of these books. They get the just these the the two Alice books get picked and put together in lots of different in lots of different ways. Um, So I um, even so when talking about openings, what I'm leading up to is I don't even know what opening to read exactly. Right. You know, whether we look at the opening or through the looking glass or Alice, Alice in Wonderland, I think we have to look at Alice in Wonderland because Just for titles, nothing else. Yeah. And it's, it's, I will also give my own bias here. Um, that is, uh, let me freely confess. I think that Alice's adventures in Wonderland is an interesting book. I think that Alice's Adventures Through the Looking Glass is a luminous, brilliant, genius book. Um, Alice in Wonderland, 
I like, I don't love. Um, Alice Through the Looking Glass is mind-blowingly amazing. Like, I love Alice Through the Looking Glass. Um, so... I guess I need to reread it. I was like, Yeah, really? it's so good. It's so That's interesting. Cool. Um, and, uh, I mean, yeah, I don't know. Maybe it's just because I'm more interested in the things that he's kind of contemplating and playing with and Through the Looking Glass. But I think that Through, through, through the Looking Glass is demonstrably better cool. than Alice in Wonderland. But Alice in Wonderland is kind of the more famous one that more people have read and um, tends to be to get the title because it's it's the one that comes first. And certainly Alice's like the beginning of Alice's adventures in Wonderland at the beginning of the first book does seem to be the sort of situation that the adaptations are kind of playing with. Right. Mm -hmm. um, especially since the, the opening of both works start with the. Well, focus on the white rabbit. Right. Um, and the trip down the rabbit hole. Yeah. Um, so, um, yeah. Yeah. Gregory, you're exactly right. The Talking Flowers. Um, Disney put those in Wonderland. That's that's from The Looking Glass as well. Absolutely. Um, no, there's so much. There's so much that is. Um, um, anyway. Which isn't. Yeah. I mean, just in terms of adaptation, which isn't surprising. I mean, if they have this wealth of content and they're only making one film why not cherry pick excellent elements from yeah. the yeah. text it's it's the same as like daydreaming up something beautiful that ties a and b together but it happens to come from source material so that's kind of cool right but right you of course make films. <laughs> yeah yeah of course i would also mention the jabberwocky poem which is utter genius and everybody knows and loves that is from the looking glass that's not from alice in wonderland so again the entire like dominating um, conception which mm -hmm. governs the plot of the 2010 adaptation is a looking glass feature yeah. um, not a anyway but so functionally we're gonna kind of have to consider them in some sort of quasi unified way so I just wanted but but I did want to kind of put out there um, to begin with because it seems to me an important thing seems to me an important thing that every adaptation, well, I mean, every adaptation that we have um, does that kind of cherry picking. Because you're, I mean, and you're right, on the one hand, Maggie, you're right that it's, it's absolutely logical, you know, that we have this wealth of material and kind of strange material, right? Um, but, um, uh, but it's, it is important, I think, that, um, So, like, for instance, wouldn't it be a little bit odd if every adaptation of the Chronicles of Narnia that we ever saw was a hodgepodge of all of the mm -hmm. Narnia stories put together? Right. I mean, wouldn't it be a little bit weird? Mm -hmm. I mean, it's not that it wouldn't be defensible to be like, let's choose like all of the favorite characters and incidents from all the book and make one story that combines all of them. Like, that's a thing you could do. Right. You could. But wouldn't everybody consider it kind of weird if you yeah. had like you know, a story in which like Aslan is sacrificed and Puddleglum is like uh, mm -hmm. traveling with, you know, the four Pevensey children mm -hmm. and there's the talking horse. Like, like if you just like, took, again, all the plot elements from all the books, people would find that weird, right? But nobody finds it weird with Alice in Wonderland. I wonder right? if it's like, I mean, who would you call the antagonist of Alice in Wonderland? The ant there isn't one. Right. So I wonder if they did that because they need one. Yeah. To make 
in in their heads at least they need one we i think we could argue that that you wouldn't necessarily need one for telling a good story but i could see that conversation of they need something to be up against and a true antagonist so pulling that out of through the looking glass was an easy ask yeah i mean on the one hand i that does seem to be an element of both of the adaptations um that they there isn't there isn't an antagonist um and both books lack the kind of accepted trajectory of storytelling that we're accustomed to and that films are certainly invested in I feel like you probably could fit like the hero monomyth onto this fairly easily, but I don't think you could fit the rising challenge, no. rising action, climax kind of vibe onto this. No, not at all. Yeah. I mean, there's, um, so thinking of Through the Looking Glass for a second. In Through the Looking Glass, the um, the only thing that pushes the story forward in any way is the chess overlay. Like the 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 that the conceit that Alice is a piece in a chess game. She's a she's a pawn of the White Queen. But she's a pawn, which means her goal is to travel all the way across the board and get queened at the end. She wants to be a queen. Now again, this is not like a grandiose quest. This is not a. It's like a whim that strikes her. And it's a reason that she keeps moving forward from square to square. And in each square, she encounters a different thing, Tweedledum and Tweedledee, or one of the things she encounters in one of the squares. Um, And so there is a kind of push forward towards some kind of consummation. But when the consummation comes, she does get queened in the end, and things get really weird when she is queened. And then, as tends to happen in both books, things just get kind of disrupted and she sort of wakes up. Right. Um, and the, the dream mechanism kind of falls to kind of falls to pieces, but there's in no case, is there an antagonist in no case? Is there like an obstacle to be overcome? Mm. It's kind of a journey. I mean, it's literally a journey. She's traveling across the chessboard. Right. Um, but uh, but even her desire to be a queen, it's not a, it's not important. <laughs> you know, it right. doesn't mean it doesn't anything. come from like family lineage or yeah. ambition or revenge or any of those things that we usually see. That kind of journey to the crown. Come yeah, from. exactly. So I, so you know, I, the reason that I think it feels less weird to people for people to be doing this kind of hodgepodge collection of elements from the story is that the stories themselves like as as plots the books don't have much in like a of a story integrity like there's there's not like a plot arc which if you mess with it you've ruined the story in some mm-hmm. way right um Indeed, there's, I mean, you could make arguments that, it, I'm not saying it doesn't matter at all, the sequence that, that you do them in, but I mean, would Alice through the Looking Glass be a fundamentally different book if she met Humpty Dumpty before she met Tweedledum and Tweedledee? Like, right. I, you know, if she met the lion and the unicorn before either one of them, like, it, it doesn't, it's, that's not obvious to me at all that that would yeah. be, you know, not in the same way that, again, if you, you think about, like the Hobbit, 
right? Would it matter if Bilbo found his magic ring before he encountered the trolls? Yes, that would yeah. change the story very significantly, yeah. right? Um, would it matter in, um, you know, Treasure Island if, you know, th- we discover who Long John Silver is before you get to the island? I mean, yes, it would matter, right? Like yeah. it's, yeah. it's you know, and but a lot of these, yeah, right. But the plot just isn't um, this the the plot of the story is not important in the same way and so it does seem to present itself it certainly has seemed to present itself to adapters as a kind of you know palette to you know draw from um you know a pool of resources to use for the story rather than yeah. thinking of there being a story that you have to you know like that, that that you have to be faithful to really sort of at all, right? Yeah, what Phil was saying, like, ne- network execs dream for season of episodes. Like, I think that's why there's so many adaptations of Alice in Wonderland. I mean, if you think films, yeah, there's a few. But there's games, there's escape rooms, there's restaurants, there's <laughs> right. bands, there's music videos. Like, so much inspiration comes from Alice in Wonderland. And it is such a kind of psychedelic, stylized thing, especially the way that Disney kind of played it. That, well, and then Tim Burton. Yeah, both of them. Like, some crazy visuals in there that really lend itself to that. That it just seems a little bit more flexible as an adaptation, as yeah. a pool of, well, of resource. I mean, in a lot of those things, that is a lot of that element of strangeness is totally there in the books, right? Like in Alice in Wonderland, when her neck grows so long that her head goes up to the tops of the trees and she cannot convince the bird that she's talking to that she isn't a snake because her neck has grown so long. And the kind of like grotesqueness of that and Alice's own, she's really upset that she's being asked to prove that she's not a snake and she can't prove that she's not a snake. You know, she's really Mm -hmm. upset about it. Um, But um, anyway, the the point is that kind of like um, weirdness, like the, the kind of weirdness of which the radical distortion of the human body is one example. I mean, I think of what they did in the in the 2010 adaptation, right, with um, the knave of hearts whose body is all distorted. Like, the, the hearts people who are all about distorted bodies, right? That's the whole yeah. point of them is, uh, you know, not the whole point of them, but that's like the, the dominant trait, right? Is, you know, you've got the, the big, huge it's head of trademark. the... trademark. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. The trademark of the, the, the people of hearts. Um, but again, that's a that's a body distortion is one of the like major recurring elements of mm. uh, especially of Alice in Wonderland where she's always growing and shrinking which of course is another thing that is seized upon as a dominant mechanism uh, and a dominant story point in uh, in the 2010 adaptation mm-hmm. um, so it's yeah so yeah so all that to say just looking at openings is difficult with this one. It right? is. Like it is. With all of the other ones, I think we wanted to talk about the big picture just because of how things are kind of referenced and influencer led into. But this one, it is. It does feel different looking at it because there isn't a singular space that we're starting from because the original is quite different from what we're looking at. But I do think the openings are interesting just to compare to each other. But when comparing it to the text, you they totally have are to have that preamble. Yeah, no, they totally are. And of course, the other thing with Alice in Wonderland which is 
where the opening is is significant, it like becomes a really, really interesting and important thing to look at, is that I feel that in the Alice story, even so, one of the things we've been noticing with openings when we've been doing our comparing, uh, our comparing and contrasting of many different stories in, in multiple different genres of, of book and film, um, one of the things, one of the sort of the trends that we notice is that the opening, the very beginning does a lot to provide cues for the audience as to what is happening, right? Mm-hmm. What is the, uh, the, the sort of the framing mechanism essentially the the kind of instructions um that we are given as to what to expect and what kind of story we're reading what kind of story we're seeing right what kind of things to value or expect and alice in wonderland that's crucially important right um and it's it was really really interesting looking at the framing mechanisms and the way that they approach um uh the way that they approach Alice, both of the adaptations. Um, so let's actually mm-hmm. look at the opening of Alice in Wonderland. Um, not the poem, which I was tempted to do, but we mm. won't look at the poem. Um, oh, hang on. I got it. All right. Okay. Chapter one, which is called Down the Rabbit Hole. Alice was beginning to get very tired by sit- very tired of sitting by her sister on the bank and of having nothing to do. Once or twice she had peeped into the book her sister was reading, but it had no pictures or conversations in it. And what is the use of a book, thought Alice, without pictures or conversations? She was So she was considering, in her own mind, as well as she could, for the hot day made her feel very sleepy and stupid, whether the pleasure of making a daisy chain would be worth the trouble of getting up and picking the daisies, when suddenly a white rabbit with pink eyes ran close by her. There was nothing so very remarkable in that, nor did Alice think it very much out of her way to hear the rabbit say to herself, to say to itself, Oh dear, oh dear, I shall be too late. When she thought it over afterwards, it occurred to her that she ought to have wondered at this, but at the time it all seemed quite natural. But when the rabbit actually took a watch out of its waistcoat pocket and looked at it and then hurried on, Alice started to her feet. For it flashed across her mind that she had never before seen a rabbit with either a waistcoat pocket or a watch to take out of it, and burning with curiosity, she ran across the field after it, and was just in time to see it pop down a rather large rabbit hole under the hedge. In another moment, Alice went down after it, never once considering how in the world she was to get out again. The rabbit hole went straight on like a tunnel for some way, and then dipped suddenly down, so suddenly that Alice had not a moment to think about stopping herself before she found herself falling down what seemed to be a very deep well. And then, of course, we have the prolonged scene of her. She's falling for a very, very long time. Um, And what we, of course, mostly get are the things that she says to herself and thinks to herself as she's falling down the hole. Um, Okay, so that's our initial frame so um it's so funny just like rereading that being like wait that all happened in like four paragraphs yep they literally dive straight down into the action yes exactly now um oh one little um uh vocabulary footnote um the word stupid um she was uh she was the, the hot day made her feel very sleepy and stupid. The adjective stupid, of course, means as in a stupor, 
right? Like, so if you feel stupid, this was a very common word to use in the 19th century. Like, that's the common dis- you know how when you are very sleepy and you're you're like kind of nodding off or about to sleep and you feel all fuzzy and you can't really concentrate and your brain is a fog that is stupid that's what it means to be stupid or to feel stupid that is you're not actually in a stupor but you're it is like you are in a stupor that's what the word stupid means. So just it, it's almost always associated with sleepiness and drowsiness um, in 19th century usage. Um, but it's um, modern people often usually do it like a kind of a double take when they come across that word in 19th century uh, books. But um, OK, so. Um, so what do we see in here? What do we see in here? Um, the first scene, right? So we've got Alice sitting by her sister. We're not told, but I think we're invited to imagine that her sister is significantly older than she. Mm-hmm. Um, because her sister is reading a grown-up book, right. which Alice is not interested in at all. Right. And she's taking it quite seriously. Yes. She is reading a book. And the only thing we know about her book is that the book has no pictures or conversations in it. Those are the two uh, things which Alice thinks are crucial to a book. This doesn't mean that Alice is a, would be normally or expecting to read picture books in the modern sense, like, you know, board books or something like that. Right. Um, it just it had no pictures or conversations in it. Conversate meaning dialogue, right? Um, in other words, it seems likely that Al- that uh, Alice's sister's book is nonfiction. Like mm-hmm. it's probably not. Um, it's probably not a novel. Um, yeah. Now, um, you are you are right, Phil, that it is a natural expectation that Alice's sister is not going to play a significant role in this book, she's going to get referred to at several points. And there'll be one or two moments when we will, in a sense, return to her. That is when the narrator will tell us, um, the narrator is big. Uh, the narrator of Alice in the one in, in one Land is, is big, uh, a big interrupter of the story. And will sometimes tell us things like will bust in, in parentheses and tell us something about what Alice said later. Or a thing that Alice thought of years later, reflecting back upon that moment in the story. Um, And so there are times there where the sister will come in again because we will hear about when later Alice told her sister about this thing. Right. So that that's so there is a way in which Alice's sister is is in that sense, a kind of persistent part of the frame. Right. But she is very much a frame instrument here. Very much like part of the way for the story to be told a mechanism yeah exactly and and she's she's here there's a there's a kind of contrast right what is the use of a book without pictures or conversations is the first this is alice's um first question right what is the use of them and of course it's there's an irony there right as like Mm -hmm. books of information like books of nonfiction 
are much more useful. Like if there's one thing that they are that like novels and fanciful stories like this one are not, it's useful, right? Mm -hmm. What is the use of the book you are currently reading for crying out loud? Hamish in the 2010 version references that. So what's the use of thinking about that? I forget what she was thinking about what it was, what it would be to fly or something. Yes. And what's the use of that? What's the use? Exactly. There is no purpose unless there is a use. Yes. And that, that, kind of pressure is usually focused on um, like again it's it's fantasy and fairy tale which are not useful and like nonfiction or realistic fiction even which is useful right um, so yeah you're right and 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 it's yeah I'd forgotten that reference but yes the the 2010 adaptation picks up on that element but again Alice so was, Alice starts by reversing it right mm-hmm What's the use of a book without pictures or conversations? Yeah. But it shows us what is of use to her. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, for that, it's like justifying imagination is very important and very useful. Seeing it from the other way, it's it just shows us very quickly that Hamish does not care about those things. And we know that Alice does. Yes. Yes. So now one other thing I would draw attention to and because this is Alice in Wonderland is um, Alice in Wonderland makes less use of this than Through the Looking Glass does. But the question of the dream frame, the dream mechanism, um, that Alice falls asleep and dreams the story that follows is suggested, but notice how gently it's suggested here. Mm. She was considering in her own mind as well as she could for the hot day made her very sleepy and stupid, whether the pleasure of making a daisy chain would be worth the trouble of getting up and picking the daisies when suddenly a white rabbit with pink eyes ran close by her. Um, that she fell asleep and is now beginning to dream is a thing we're going to learn. And she is going to recognize that and acknowledge it later on. Again, it's one of the brilliant... It's one of the things that makes Through the Looking Glass so brilliant is that she the second time is both contemplating and theorizing about that element. Right. So like she will say to the other, some of the other characters that you're, you're just a, a kind of a thing in my dream. And they say to her that actually she's the, that she she meets a character who's sleeping, the red King, in fact. And, uh, Humpty Dumpty tells her that she is a character in his dream. She's just a figment of his dream, actually. Um, and she's very un- disquieted by the thought. Um, and it ends the, the final, the title of the final chapter is Who Dreamed It? Um, uh, did she dream it? Or is she, in fact, still just a character in the dream of the Red King? Anyway, so Lewis Carroll likes to think and increased increasingly like to think about the whole dream dream vision mechanism uh, for the storytelling. But I, for this reason, I believe that it is important that there is a, there is a kind of uncertainty, right? That he begins with here. Um, he does not, we are not told by the narrator, you know, one day Alice was sitting out and she had the following remarkable dream in her dream. Right. right. She thought she saw a white rabbit with pink eyes running, right. you know, in a waistcoat and a, and a, and a, and a watch. Um, 
we are left uncertain. And again, then there's only the gentle clue that she has fallen asleep. The boundaries between dreaming and waking are really uncertain. Um, mm -hmm. And that, I think, is one of the really important things to observe about the frame, the opening and the frame of Alice in Wonderland from the beginning. Um, the and uncertainty. Why, the question. Go ahead. And, yeah, and, and exactly the uncertainty. I think that's why it works so well. Like we're saying, as a pool for adaptation. Because was it a dream? Wasn't it? Well, let's play with that. You know, do we make it look more believable that I got a bump on my head? Oh, then she did dream it all. But did she? You know, there's so many different ways that you can kind of weave into that. That that's fun. That's that's a fun game to play with an audience. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. Um, a la Wizard of Oz, and you know, right. a thousand other movies. Did it happen? Right. Yes, exactly. Um, yeah, The Wizard of Oz is... Um, the Wizard of Oz film does a very similar thing, right? Where it feels very dreamlike. And in particular, of course, the radical um, shift in the film from black and white to color, right? Um, is one of the things that's really striking mm. um, about the sort of dream world versus versus the regular world. Um, but in any case, uh, what the film does, what the what the um, the uh, sorry, I'm still thinking about Dorothy here for a second. Um, what that <laughs> film does is imitate that uncertain transition right from waking to dreaming like is this a dream has a dream begun how can you know whether it's a dream or it's real um and um yeah now and yes phil you're right the wizard of oz movie makes it very clear but not until the end yeah right my point is at the beginning that tra that moment of transition is is far is far less clear um but anyway uh, I don't want to go too far down the Oz trail because that's a whole different conversation, right? Another show, but it is, guys. but it is there. There is a, there is that sort of similarity here. But then now, so notice then how he kind of builds on this. Um, as I mentioned, the narrator character is very intrusive. The voice of the narrator character, like you, are very conscious of the fact that you are being told a story by somebody. Um, this is not just a story. You're just kind of that's just kind of happening, right? You're there is very plainly a storyteller, right? I mean, even in the way that. Um, so again, like the, in the third paragraph, there, there was nothing so very remarkable about that. That is about the white rabbit with pink eyes. Nor did Alice think it so very much out of the way to hear the rabbit say to itself, "Oh dear, oh dear, I shall be too late." When she thought it over afterwards, it occurred to her that she ought to have wondered at this, but at the time it seemed quite natural. But when the rabbit actually took a watch, right? So, again, notice the, the kind of intrusiveness of the narrator there. The way that the narrator takes us out of the sequence. We're certainly not just having Alice's experience, nor are we allowed just to sort of lose ourselves in Alice's immediate experience. Um, we get... He, he intrudes upon the moment by telling us what she thought about it afterwards, again. Right, we get some actual insight into her. You know, we, we see the, the judgment and the perception 
So I like being drawn into that a lot more. It's not mm-hmm. just setting us up. It's taking us in. Yes. Yes. Um, but of course, the other thing that we... Um, um, <laughs> yeah, that's Phil says, I'm imagining Peter Falk looking over yeah. his glasses at us, right? <laughs> yes. Um, uh, the, the Wonderland, the Alice narrator doesn't ever really do a, like, she does not get eaten by the eels at this time kind of interruption, right? <laughs> right? We don't, um, we don't get that kind of, like, direct interaction with the audience, which is not impossible, right, for yeah. a narrator in a book to do. Um, I mean, I say that we are conscious of listening to a storyteller, but we're not conscious of, like, our own presence or of a surrogate audience presence in the story, right? Um, of course, n- now I'm, like, going off down a little... Princess Bride I'm like, tangent. You're falling down a rabbit hole here. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Can we pause for a second to talk about that metaphor? The Is rabbit hole? The rabbit hole? Yeah, because I use it all the time. And then it's hard to not, you know, watch this, read this and be like, oh, but yeah. So, I mean, again, pervasiveness of an adaptation, right? Everybody uses it all the time for every single thing. Yes. Yes. It's, it's so what we're just reading, this passage that we're discussing right now, is the passage about falling down a rabbit hole, right? Mm-hmm. Like this is the source this is, this of is that metaphor that people use, right? Um, so it's... And now it's used for like, I fell down a YouTube rabbit hole. You know, it's it's used in so many different contexts that you wouldn't necessarily have thought of 20 years ago, even yeah. 10. Yeah, I think... Um, oh, that sounds I like think fun. that... I think that the Alice in Wonderland roots of that particular expression in English has been combined with another thing. Cause you know, this happens a lot, right? Where you get like two different idioms, which are, which have a point of contact. And so they get kind of confused with each other. So like, for instance, I think I'm like, I need another example. <laughs> well, rabbits, rabbits are the point of contact. I think that the idiom of, Falling Down a Rabbit Hole from Alice in Wonderland is combined with an idiom of chasing rabbits, like a dog mm. goes off and chases rabbits. So mm-hmm. Because people tend to use, like, I'm going down a rabbit hole, meaning, like, I'm getting distracted from the thing that I'm doing, like a dog who's doing something and then veers off to chase a rabbit off to the side, right? Mm-hmm. Um, whereas, of course, there's nothing related to, like, digression or shift i mean you could kind of construct it that way as a metaphor but it's not it's not what's sort of happening here um anyway yeah sort I, of, um, but I i can see it as like a transportation to an otherworldly space like if if that's what is the journey sure like yeah that's not actually what we're referencing but the destination being i fell down a rabbit hole oh you ended up somewhere totally different than intended Right. And of course, what, one of the main, like when you just talked about falling down a YouTube rabbit hole, right? Mm-hmm. When people say things like that, one of the things that is, that that is sort of suggests is that I went to see a thing and then it turned out like I got drawn into this much bigger thing. Mm-hmm. Just as Alice enters the rabbit hole, 
to see where it goes and then ends up falling down this hole and she's falling for like hours right yeah um it's so much bigger than she thinks and it's not just that it takes her somewhere strange that also is an implication of the whole i fell down a rabbit hole kind of thing right is that i end up like discovering something like you know Mm -hmm. there was so much more there than i expected to find right also that it took me someplace strange that i didn't expect uh you know i had no idea it was it's not just that the hole is longer or larger than Mm -hmm. you thought it would be but that it takes you to a completely and unexpected um uh location anyway um but uh, yeah, I mean, I th- I think one of the purest that is purest in the sense of really evoking the Al- the Lewis Carroll concept of the rabbit hole most directly. I think of the Matrix, right? Mm. Um, uh, you know when. Um, uh, or, uh, <laughs> this just shows where we are in life. I'm like, or Moana. Um, that- that's who. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I'm still falling. <laughs> yes. Yes. Yeah. Um, yes. Um, and um, right. I, I think that's good. Uh, Subpar umpire says, I also think of down the rabbit hole as being uh, that you are drawn into this thing involuntarily, yeah. like Alice falling uh, yeah. into. Yes. And I think both adaptations really leaned into that. You know, it's they're they're taking that moment in the book, which is very well described, but it's it's fairly short. You know, like yes. Appears, and also just like you know, if we wanted to step back and look at big picture openings, just how much time one spends on setting the scene versus the other, yes. versus the text. Like this is real quick; it just gets right into it. The Disney adaptation does take its time. It creates this little pastoral scene. It lets us sit with the characters and see that dynamic, but it's fairly simple. We get a whole but intro both, song. Yeah, whole intro song. Yeah. Um, and we have the credits running in the front. So you do have time to see all of the characters, yeah. you know, with each one as the credits are running, which I, I miss that. I love that about old, old films. Yeah. Um, the, the credits at the beginning is a really interesting, like it's, I think that's, um, I often think about that when we will occasionally during our uh, family movie night tradition, um, uh, I know I've mentioned this before, what we call compulsory cinematic education uh, in our household. No, you've mentioned to me because I was appalled at some of the things your son hadn't seen. So, yeah, no, it's uh, we're <laughs> necessary. We're working on that. But anyway, yeah, when you reach back beyond a certain point and all the credits are going at the beginning, it's it's uh, uh, it's, it's a really remarkable effect that I haven't I think I haven't thought through enough what the impact no, of that and is. a lot of the filmmakers and production houses I've talked to and worked with really miss it because everybody leaves at the credits now whereas back in the day you had to sit there and watch them and I've watched a few films at BAFTA in London which is like going to the Academy Awards cinema I'm not a BAFTA member I go with people <laughs> and they like if you got up and left during the credits you would be like hissed out of the cinema like you sit through the duration you do not talk you do not eat like BAFTA's like serious so I quite like that's the only place that I still see that because everywhere else the credits start to run and people leave but if you have to sit there and watch the names there's a certain I don't know gravitas or like appreciation of the work and the art put into what you're about to engage with so like you're watching the trailers you have to watch the credits and then we'll give you the film <laughs> there's mm-hmm. it's almost like a rite of passage we're gonna make you witness all the work Whereas now, eh, 
Now you stay for the next scene after the credits if it's a Marvel film, and rarely ever does anybody stay beyond that. Right. But even that is, um, you still, like, talk and, yeah. like, you don't pay you're attention to the credits. The you know, you're still waiting. You're waiting for the last scene, you know, the yeah. extra scene to come or to see if there is going to be an extra scene. But rarely are you actually paying attention, you know, yeah. to those. Um, whereas, you know, you think of the way in which the opening credit sequence, it's it's not only like an overture, it actually includes, musically, an overture, right. essentially. Um, and allows for, as you were saying, with the introduction of the characters and the art frames and things, um, a kind of visual overture as well as uh, musical. Yeah, a little bit of a trailer of what's to come. Mm-hmm. Yeah. No, it's it's a really interesting kind of effect, and it's it's fun to see. Not, I mean, of course, you know, you you get that in like old Disney films, but even in in older, um, you know, live action films, it's interesting mm-hmm. to see visually what do they do with the fonts and with the um you know how they present the names and how they what what they put in the background what 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 mm-hmm. visually they show during there anyway um this so is they a, both have this kind of setting the stage but obviously in very different ways yeah. but i do think both really lean into this rabbit hole of let's really focus in on and they're really similar like i was looking for the same kind of stuff in both of them they've got books lamps grandfather clocks you know there's they're really making it look like this kind of old library-esque type space pianos yeah yeah um yeah anyway sorry i'm getting all distracted today let me think let's let's think for a second more practically about the framing mechanisms for the two films right and how the two films handle like what kind of issues, what sorts of things they're announcing. I'm like, the elephant in the room is the immense backstory we get in the 2010 version. Yeah. And I think a lot of that leans into what we were talking about with, like, the simplicity of understanding your audience. Like, the 2010 version opens with a bunch of men in a library talking about trade routes. I mean, it's a business conversation. It has has nothing to do with what we have. And then we have this flashback to Alice in bed as a child having a bad dream. So her sister is nowhere to be seen. And just asking, am I mad? Have I gone around the bend? And having this relationship with her father be the important thing. I mean, with both of them, you have this, like, figure in their family that needs to become absent when they go down the rabbit hole. And we see that all the time. Get rid of the parents. Get rid of the guardians. Get rid of, you know, the the responsible adults so these kids can have the adventures and grow. Mm -hmm. They both serve that purpose. But in the 2010 version, we have so much more conflict and also backstory that... I had to, I was saying to Corey, I hadn't watched the 2010 version in a really long time. I had to go back and read the last few pages of the script for the 2010 version. So I was like, what's the frame? Where do they go with this setup? And spoilers, but like having her go off and join her father's company and go on these adventures on a ship and all of this. I was like, oh, so that's what they're setting that up for. She's got her own really interesting, adventurous, independent, modern woman arc that that audience would really latch on to. At least I can see that being the discussion. But a little different than the Disney one. Yeah, so the... yeah And, and, and the matrimony. Sorry, I'm still going. No, and yeah, like, absolutely. All the conversations about matrimony. You know, she's there to be proposed to. Their relationship as, as fa- husband and wife when the father passes away and the relationship of mother to daughter and the sister's husband making out with somebody in the bushes and having that kind of marriage element... Yeah. Be painted and just 
all these different definitions of what is important in that opening, what, six minutes or something? And, yeah, it's just so different from what we've seen before. So you, I feel like that's a, a pretty interesting take on an adaptation. Like, let's pull on nothing to create this dramatic flair, but you can see how that engages you on a different level because now there's more at stake. Yeah. I, I found myself asking when I was watching the intro, I was like, where, where do we stop? <laughs> like, what is the opening of this film? Right. Is yeah. it the father? Like, like we never even discussed that, did we? I mean, I, I just had to keep going until we were through the rabbit hole and assume. Yeah. That's what I, I, I was like, I, <laughs> yeah. Had I, if I didn't know the book, right. And somebody had just said, here's a film watch the opening of this film and stop when the opening is done. I would have stopped at the end of the father daughter scene mm. in bed, right? When she mm-hmm. would, the daughter was in bed and the father comes to her bedside. Um, I, I'm like, okay, that's the opening. Of the yeah. Film, that's right an there. opening. Mm-hmm. Right. And now the next scene where now that girl is 19 and she's going to this party and she doesn't want to go and she's not dressed appropriately. And she's you know, all these, like, her and her mom in the carriage and everything. I'm like, okay, this is now the beginning of the rest of the story. And you could remove the whole father-daughter bit, and that would still work as an opening. If it started with the mother and daughter in the carriage, that would still work as an opening. The conclusion might be a little bit messier, but you could probably still make that work. But they really do have kind of two chunks of an opening. Exactly. So, I mean, I, I was like, I stubbornly persisted until she fell down the rabbit hole, right? Because I was like, finally, like, I was being yeah. wonder if a rabbit hole was going to come in at all, right? Um, and then it, and then it finally did. But I, so I think, but I don't think thinking about the film as a whole. I mean, I think that you were right. the The way in which an opening, the opening of a film, frames the story, prompts in all of the ways that we were talking about, um, the falling down the rabbit hole is not part of that frame, like not at all in that Mm. story and that's a that by itself is a fascinating interpretation like a fascinating adaptation move to make with alice in wonderland right um yeah there's so much so much with a 2010 Mm -hmm. film so much to talk about there's no way there's no way but hang on let me He's going to try. Yeah. No, wait. Let me do the Disney opening first, because I don't talk about this, then I'm never going to get back to it. Okay. Um, so let me just then content myself for the moment to say the opening of the 2010 film is in this way utterly unrelated. Well, no, no, no. All right. Hang on. I said utterly unrelated to the opening in the book. It is in one sense. Dreams. Right. There is the dream frame as she was yeah. having a dream and woke up and was scared. Right. Um, the establishment of her opening location is somehow unsatisfactory. Mm-hmm. It's just so much richer. Feels like it has a connotation that I approve. I'm not sure if I do or not. But the the 2010 version just is so much more in depth yeah. than the others. Yeah. Um, well, that is certainly true. Um, I mean, one of the things. C.S. Lewis, Lewis and Tolkien, by the way, both huge Lewis Carroll fans and refer back to Lewis Carroll 
and especially through the looking glass lots and lots and lots of times um but um i but um one of the one a really smart thing that uh lewis said about alice in wonderland um he was talking about alice as a character and how underdeveloped alice is as a character like she does not um he said alice is um Alice is like a, a normal little girl. Like, like everything around her is strange, but she is like the touchstone for the normal world, right? Like we, she's not, she is not a strange little girl. She is a normal little girl in the middle of very strange surroundings. Like that's kind of the mm-hmm. way that the story unfolds. Mm-hmm. Now, of course, one can easily make the argument that the weirdness of the story around her is a development of her own peculiarities right that she's not in fact normal at all and and through the looking glass i would say that in particular but um the point that he was making this was in in one of his critical essays i think it was on stories when he was saying that like you in some stories you don't want a lot of plot development right or to use another story which i know uh you have a lot of experience with um twilight Right. Hmm. Part of the reason that Bella as a character and this Twilight story works as well as it does is that Bella is such a blank slate. Right. She is a completely uninteresting and unimportant. Like there's nothing special about her. And if there were, it would be to to paraphrase exactly what Lewis says about Alice. It would be like too interesting like it would you want a like default resting place to be to rest on for the reader and to like through which to encounter the strangeness right and that one they went even step further with first person narration you know using bella as the first person narrator and having her be such a blank slate nearly everybody that read that even if you weren't consciously doing it you were putting yourself in her shoes so that's why everybody freaking fell in love with either a vampire or werewolf they were just seeing it all through her eyes exactly her eyes were very pure and simple so having this like this omnipotent you know all-seeing frame narrator is just a different way to go for the same kind of outcome yes yeah exactly i mean it's it's a it's it's a really it's 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 an important it's, it's an interesting thing to sort of acknowledge about mm-hmm. about the the story in the front. How are, so twenty ten? And that doesn't version, mean they're ditzy. That doesn't mean they're bad characters. Bella is debatable. It doesn't mean they're bad. It just means that they're they're keeping it simple. So it, everything else kind of glows in contrast. Right. Well, I mean, it's one of the things. Again, it's one of the points that Lewis was making, and I think that his point is even more relevant now than it was when he was making it. Um, back in the 40s, I think he was writing that essay. But um, basically that we have a, we have like, the modern storytelling bias is that all the characters have to be like interesting and well-rounded characters or they're bad characters, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And that any story that is based on characters that are not really fully realized in this way. This is one of the things that drives, often with very interesting effect, the desire to make all of the villains like well-rounded and interesting and, and like make us be able to relate to them and see the whole picture of their story and everything. Um, their motivation that often, for why they're bad. And yeah, right, that often leads to really interesting stories. Like I'm not saying that that's like a horrible thing to do, but 
it's not like if you don't do that, it's a bad story. And many, mm-hmm. many a story has been told with like an antagonist figure that you never get to know or never even see Lord of the Rings, for instance. Right. Um, but who is nevertheless provides, a, you know, the framework of the story in which all the other characters and things can be developed right, mm-hmm. and expanded. Um, they're just different. They're different, not only different mechanisms for telling stories, but different kinds of stories. Mm-hmm. Um, a story in which you really understand why the villain is a villain and how the villain came to be a villain um, right. and how the villain, how things look from the villain's point of view. It's not that those aren't interesting stories, but it's not the only kind of story, right? And it's not the only way to tell a story. But I'm distra- getting distracted again. The Disney opening is what I want to talk about. So I feel like we're already going to be like, okay, we're going to start next week with a little bit more of this conversation. So. Yeah. Yeah, actually, um, ooh, that's a really wonderful idea. Um, okay, so hang on. Disney thing first, and then we'll come back to that because I would, I would, um, um, I want to do, I would love to do a sort of a longer case study on the 2010 adaptation, the Tim Burton. That would be fun. Thousand I'd love to do that. Because, I'd like to read. I'd like yeah. to read the script while watch because I, I haven't finished watching the film, but then I read the script and prepped for this. I was like, that happens. I'd really like to rewatch it. And yeah, yeah, I, I was, I was, there's so many, I, anyway, so I'll talk about that a little bit at the end, but finishing the openings concept, right? In the, in the Disney animated film, they play with a lot of the details, but they make some really intriguing changes, Right. The whole reading a book with no pictures or conversations in it thing, absolutely there. Yeah. The whole book of information, right? The book that is being read is a really dull um, English history book. Um, uh, and Alice is paying no attention. In fact, Alice is not just sitting on the bank next to her sister. She is up a tree. It's not her sister. It's like her mom or her governess or something. Governess some, or something. Yeah, some adult, teacherly figure, some adult authority, adult female authority figure. Right. We're not told the exact relation. Um, so it's not a sister situation, which is important. They're not next to each other, which is important. Alice is up in the tree, making a daisy chain as she's disregarding con- her. Yeah, yeah, she's contemplating doing, but yeah, totally disregarding her. Um, and the emphasis is on Alice's imaginations, mm-hmm. right? Um, this is, I think, really important. Though, again, it's another way in which... Oh, gosh, it's so hard to have time to talk about this because <laughs> what Disney is doing, they're basically doing the beginning of Through the Looking Glass while pretending they're doing the beginning of Alice in Wonderland including with a cat. Like, she's got her cat, Dinah. Yeah. And Alice interacting with her cat, Dinah, imaginatively, and holding conversations with her in which she supplies Dinah's half of the... Like, she asks Dinah a question and then responds as if she obviously heard what Dinah said. Um, You know, she supplies Dinah's half of the conversation as well. Um, Alice's imaginative life, very dynamic and uninhibited imaginative life, that she is is a major element of the Through the Looking Glass opening, but as we see, plays no part whatsoever. We didn't have the faintest idea that Alice 
in these first four paragraphs is in any way an unimaginative child. Right. right. Um, all we know is she likes stories, storybooks. Right. right. She would rather be reading something that has pictures and dialogue. Exactly. Um, but it's it changes the frame of Alice in Wonderland because when she encounters the rabbit with the waistcoat and the watch, the rabbit seems to be more clearly a figure out of her own imagination, right? Mm. Um, she had just been saying that she likes things like that, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and this, that's how like, a good story should be about things like that. And then this thing comes along as if she conjured it, right? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, that juxtaposition, it, it is a juxtaposition. One leads to the other. Yes. Whereas the 2010, it's an interjection. Yes, yes. Um, and there's the fact that Alice is, Alice in the 2010 version is interacting with people. Indeed, when she goes off to follow the rabbit down the rabbit hole, she's standing on the stage in front of the whole gathered audience with somebody literally painting the scene off on the, capturing the scene off on the side, right? Like she is absolutely the center of everyone else's attention and she has to stop and leave them all and go running off down the side. So it's very much an interruption of all of the normal life and of Mm -hmm. everything else. Right. Um, And there's real world movement, you know, when she's asking other people, did you see that? And the bushes move as she moves. So, like, it felt way more believable, whereas the other one felt initially more dreamlike, made up. Yes. Yes, exactly. Um, And no one else was seeing the rabbit in the in that in that film. But um, though, of course, Dinah the cat did see the rabbit. Right. Was, in fact, what drew Alice's attention to the rabbit in mm-hmm. the animated version. Um, but, of course, Dinah herself seems to be activated by Alice's own um, mm-hmm. uh, imagination as well in the Disney version. Um, but um, but yes, it's there's I think that the the suggestion of the dream frame of Alice in Wonderland in the Disney animated version is even more gentle than it is in the text. Right. I don't, I couldn't detect any hint that like she had fallen asleep at some point. Like Mm -mm. if they're going to, you know, when they, they tell us later that she fell asleep listening to the woman reading English Mm -hmm. history, that's perfectly believable. Right. Given how boring Alice found it. Um, But again, I don't, I don't, I don't, I didn't catch any, Hint of transition. Yeah, we didn't see the spot where that could have been believable. Yeah. And so, therefore, the implication seems to be that the, um, uh, the, the implication seems to be that the whole story is not a dream, but Alice's own, like, Alice is this, she's the narrator. She's the, like, she's making it happen in a sense, right? It's is all, mm-hmm. it's, it's like, it's, it's being actively populated with her own imagination. Um, and that's that again, that seems to me to be the, the framing mechanism, like what we're mm-hmm. invited to imagine um, from the start in the Disney, in the Disney thing. Let me come back to, the 2010 version. And I know we're coming to the end of our schedule time. We'll talk about the schedule too in a second, but um, I would love to talk about, so 
I, let me first of all confess, I had never seen the 2010 version. Like, I just watched it for the first time. Mm-hmm. Um, and in preparation for this, and my reactions to it, I was fascinated by my reactions to it. Like, I kind of need to work through this a little bit. Yeah. Um, and so when I was watching that, I had the hardest time I've had in a while um, restraining my like old tendencies. You know, I was just going to say I'm like reacting because yes, yes, begging for a reaction. Like it's it's prodding for a reaction. Yes, I was. There were so many times when I found myself tutting. You know, like tut tut tut. Like they're Mm -hmm. just and saying those things that it's so hard not to say. Things like, boy, they are not understanding. Alice in Wonderland or Through the Looking Glass at all, yeah. right? Like this is a this is a this is a, a ridiculous um, shift of this stuff. But I I I've at least progressed far enough that I was self conscious of it. Though I was having all of those thoughts, I was self conscious of it, right? Like I as soon as I formulated the thoughts, I recognized them for what they were. I couldn't stop them, but I need to think, I need to think it through more because what it seems to me, obviously the film is doing what I, what we were calling what, like a a modulation, right? It's, it's modulating the story. It's not just a retelling, obviously. Um, How are they modulating it? What exactly is going on here? How does the, how does the shift from childhood to adulthood, which begins the story, right, and which they focus on so prominently, how does that interact with the ways in which they have shifted the story? Um, they have sort of created the story that they have created, which ha- which in its way... Yeah, I think it's fair to say has nothing at all to do with the story Mm. that Lewis Carroll told. Um, It's not to say that it has nothing to do with the elements of the book, with the character or the incidents or anything like that. But the story as a whole, you know, like what is this movie about? Yeah. Is very different from what the book was about. But I need to... I want to think more carefully about that because I was I was very aware that I was leaping to rash. I was having rash reactions. Right. Yeah. Well, and I think I want to think about the prompts for things to question you on that, too, because I feel like how we started our conversations and this show and everything else is very much from a place of rational discussion and fair play. That doesn't mean that you can't get upset about things and that doesn't, <laughs> right. and that doesn't mean that stories are told well like it just means that we're looking at it in a different way not full opinion more analysis right. so you can still say that wasn't a good choice for a story that villain wasn't interesting that hero was dull like those are still valid emotional statements yeah, yeah you but don't if have it's to like to everything quality of the adaptation good. then that's not yeah that's not Yep. That's not right. <laughs> no, it's it's just the the where I was 
kind of catching myself was merely like what was upsetting me was how different it was just yeah. the fact that it was different not whether it was effective or or not or yeah. interesting or not um and the more i was the more i watched it and the more i thought about it the more i'm like okay i i don't think so i still don't think i love that movie at all um yeah. there's a lot of things i dislike about the movie still um but what i want to work through more is the differences and be looking because I it seems to me a really fascinating example of a of a of, of a different kind of modulation. Like when you take when you take a story and you turn it into a quite different kind of story altogether, right? That I don't think is an illegitimate thing to do in an very adaptation. doable. But I always have in the back of my mind, especially with audience reception, the question why. So if you're going to adapt something based on this text, or, or perhaps we could argue two texts, because we're doing Looking Glass 2, why are you changing so much? Mm -hmm. So, And there's not necessarily like a, an accusatory tone to that. It's not like, why did you do this? It's like, no, tell me, like, what, what was the thought process behind this? Because sometimes thinking through like what that conversation would have been like makes for a really interesting example of retelling a story. But there were a lot of things in this one that just felt like it was different in order to throw you off. And that's really jarring for anybody that has any knowledge of the source material. So that's a huge ask of your audience, too. Like, I'm going to annoy you. I'm going to throw you off kilter and I'm just going to make it keep happening. So like anytime yes. you did get sucked into the story, you were then knocked back off by something that wasn't right. Yes. But here's the thing. Here's the kind of what was for me the most fascinating element of the film. And that was the story dynamic that she had been there before as a child. Yeah. Right. Which is what Phil just mentioned. Exactly. Well. Uh -huh. And um, and that therefore the story that you're watching is not meant to be like, it's not the story. It's a sequel yeah. to the story. Yeah. Um, and that if there are differences, those differences are the kinds of, you know, the sort of differences you would expect when a different story happens and the way that they're paralleling that to it, like adult to childhood, there's, there was a lot going on there and I couldn't help but think, um, I mean, it seemed very self aware, even the whole question of like, are you the right Alice? Mm -hmm. The way that the characters in the story kept debating as to whether, including Alice herself, as to whether she was the right Alice or the, right the real Alice. Alice right. Mm -hmm. And I was, and I'm sitting here thinking, I'm like, that is exactly what all the viewers of this movie are asking themselves also. Like, is yeah. she the real Alice? Like, is that, is, is this, is this that story? Is she that character? Right. Um, Anyway, so I'm, I, I know. I like, I, clearly this is what we're going to talk about next week too. I, yeah. Right? I need to unpack okay. this more. Yeah. And I'm, yeah, I'm the one that calling the shot of like, nope, we're going to wrap up tonight. Also, I, I want to, we have a lot of like housekeeping announcements to do right now. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, um, we do. One is I forgot, um, or I messed up the names. It was Jen that suggested, um, Alice in Wonderland. Oh, John suggested, yeah. John suggested Winnie the Pooh. So we're going to be doing that one in the future. Okay. And we talked about it last time, but so. 
John is the, coming. Just right. So not right away. Mala was uh, suggested Alice in Wonderland, and yep. that's what what. So we're gonna and we're gonna that's move on. We're gonna talk about falling down. Let's let's talk about let's talk about Alice. Let's talk about the 2010 adaptation more next time. Because um, there's there's a lot to do there, and honestly, I think this is a fun conversation because I think we've we've not really done enough yet talking about modulations, right? Um, thinking about how what it means to what you're doing when you're pushing the limits, when you're not just making the kinds of changes that are inescapable to make when you're retelling a story, when you're shifting genres, all the other things that you're trying to do when you're translating, you know. Um, so not just translational changes, but setting out to make some kind of fundamental change and yet retaining some kind of relationship to the original. What does yeah. that look like? What are the Pushing parameters boundary. there? Mm-hmm. And I think this is a really fascinating kind of example there. And fascinating especially because I think it's very self-aware of that relationship um, mm-hmm. and is doing some interesting things. Like I said, not at all convinced I love this movie, but um, but I but was certain I was like, I, I have to watch this again and talk about this more. And yeah, this and more. it's a neat one. I mean, all of these are just kind of giving us different examples of things to talk about with adaptation. So it's a, it's a good conduit to talk about stuff we haven't necessarily talked about because we've also loved most of the adaptations we've been talking about. So it's it's kind of a nice change to be like, this one was challenging, and yeah. here's a few things that made me think about. Yeah, yeah, for sure. So let's do that next time. Um, uh, case study of the 2010 adaptation as a modulation adaptation and thinking about its relationship with the text and how it plays with that and all those things. So we'll talk about that more next time. Um, and, uh, and then we'll do Winnie the Pooh. After and we'll that. be half an hour later, starting next week. Yes, and next week our schedule's going to have to change. Um, I've been trying, but I just can't. I school pick up and stuff. I just there's no four o'clock is an increase. Is it's increasingly clear that it's just unrealistic. So I'm not going to try it anymore. So we'll start at four thirty Eastern time, uh, starting next week. Um, and the only caveat is next Monday is when I fly back to the U.S. So I'll have traveled overnight and might be falling asleep on screen but just yell every now and again and i'll wake back up <laughs> exactly right we'll we can do it we can do find... it yeah what? sounds good so you're saying you might be stupid next week is the oh i will be stupid there's no question about that <laughs> i will be stupid so i'll just interject and be like they were crazy <laughs> she's not drunk ladies right. and gentlemen she's just stupid yeah yeah exactly um Okay, so that's those are the things that are coming up. So we're going to do 2010 next week. We're going to do um, Winnie the Pooh after that. And we're going to shift to 4.30 starting next week. Boom, boom. Yep. Excellent. All right. Thank you, everybody. Thanks, Maggie. Thanks, guys. And uh, we'll, uh, I'll look forward to continuing this conversation next time. Me too. Right. Good night. Bye now.